0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Leonora Walters and joining me today are personal finance writer Kate Bealey and special guests Darius McDermott, Managing Director at Chelsea Financial Services and Carl Harold Janssen, Manager of International Biotechnology Trust. Over the past 10 years, biotech shares have done really well, so Kate has recently been looking at this area. Kate, is this a good area for investors to get into?
1: Well, yeah, biotech's been um, a real phenomenal performer in the past kind of 10 years. Um, so the Nasdaq biotech index has soared and returned kind of around 500% in 10 years, which is double the Nasdaq composite index. And the trusts and funds which invest in this area come top of of their categories um, and indeed of all closed-ended and open-ended funds over the long term. So I think the main question for investors and for you Carl, is can this continue, this rise and rise in biotech?
2: I am uh, absolutely convinced that this will rise over the long term. You mentioned 10 years, if you go back 20 years, you know the biotech sector has done 12 plus percent uh, growth per year uh, in in the stock market, uh, healthcare about 9 to 10 and the general stock market 7 and I think the drivers are still in place for the similar type of development over the next 10 to 20 years, meaning that this particular subsector will outperform the stock market in general. And also within healthcare will be the leading sector. And what are those drivers? The main drivers are top line. Now this sector is driven by, by top line growth and uh, and then, of course, that materializes into earnings growth and uh, uh, the projections for for the next uh, five years between uh, 2015 to 18 is, is approximately 16.5% EPS growth for, for the larger biotech companies in the U.S., uh, and at the PE multiple of approximately 20 for, for 16, this is, uh, I think, a good proposition. And we see this earnings growth continue through, through top line, meaning new drugs coming to the market.
1: So that's what's driving the the main growth. Is it kind of more more drugs, more sales of drugs at a very simplistic level?
2: Yeah, and behind that is this kind of complete shift in the scientific advancements that we see as an accelerating knowledge about the diseases that we are, uh, we are seeing, you know, basic science trying to understand and now understanding what genes, what proteins are involved in diseases like schizophrenia, Alzheimer's that we hadn't had a clue about and that's a good starting point to make new drugs Mm,
1: because I mean I think the thing that worries people about this market um, and we hear the word bubble used a lot in relation to biotech and I think the concern is that there are there are kind of so many IPOs and so much M&A activity particularly with companies which don't even have a drug to bring to market I think in the US last year something like 40 percent of IPOs were for companies at preclinical stage I mean is that a concern
2: I agree that uh, uh, there are so, there's some frothiness in parts of this market. Uh, what I mentioned the P valuations, as for the earnings growth uh, stories and companies that, uh, and that's kind of give a solid valuation base to the market, and also the low interest rate that we have and probably going to have for the longer term is going to kind of keep the stock market at, at this type of of valuation. But what you're mentioning is you know the small caps, the the early research companies where there is a lot of expectations for future mm. earnings. Uh, depending on, on results and I see frothiness in some areas, some areas are always hyped, some areas are always like... In. Which other are hyped uh, uh, areas? Uh, well hyped areas as I see it is like like cell therapy for cancer, you know, companies uh, with uh, less than 100 patients treated, uh, trading at uh, over 2 billion dollars valuation. Mm. Uh, these things we don't like very much, we don't invest very much in that yet, I really want to see you know good solid data and, uh, and in, uh, in a, quite a good number of patients so you know it's not going to be any talks or anything. So we try to avoid those subsectors but definitely you know, there are some subsectors that are very highly valued and others that are not.
1: And which, which are the ones that are not then? Where, where's the good value in biotech? And, uh,
2: I think uh, you know, from a risk reward perspective uh, like anti-infectives and antivirals or are or, or less risky, but still there is a big need. Um, and what s- kind of
1: stocks, what companies would those be? The
2: large caps we have seen, uh, like Gilead, the buying, uh, from asset for 11 billion three years ago, and uh, launched, you know, the new hepatitis C drug. Selling for more than 10 billion dollars and the whole sector for 20. Uh, so, uh, we like uh, that type of companies where uh, also in the research area, new antibiotics for uh, for uh, pneumonia and other diseases that you know, 100 years were quite deadly, and now we pay you know, two pounds to get treated. But the problem is that these bugs are becoming resistant, so we are so we so those types of uh, improved antibiotics um, where you know, you know, the mechanism and everything, there's much less risk, but. Uh, are underappreciated, I think.
1: Okay, so I mean, what, what do you think is one of the most exciting new developments in biotech which you are investing in?
2: Well, if you think about the new, I think, you know, then uh, what happened yesterday is what mm. <laughs> what I, I, I could focus on. And that's, uh, uh, I think, the... Um, more data in the Alzheimer's area. I was always in the camp that you can't invest in Alzheimer's because there are absolutely no drugs in development that could cure the disease because we don't know what it is. There are no animal models and so on. But for the first time, I moved from that camp into the camp of believing that there might be new drugs that could actually change the course of Alzheimer's disease. And I'm thinking mainly of Biogen's drug and Lilly's drug in development data for example for the 10 milligram dose for the Biogen drug between 6 and, and 12 months where there was no deterioration of the disease I think it's a and the dose response and a, and a low number of patients and still we see all this all comes mm-hmm. together that I moved from one camp to another I think you know in Alzheimer we might in a couple of years see the first drug emerge that could change the, the course of the disease.
1: So will you be investing in, in that drug?
2: Of course
1: and are you now invested in it?
2: Or? We are invested in Biogen, for example. That yep. has, uh, I think, the strongest data.
1: And and so you'll be upping your kind of exposure to that, will you? Uh,
2: well, uh, I I don't comment on you know how we how we manage the portfolio. One thing is you know what you think is a good drug, a good company, and so on. Then it's another thing is you know how you manage your investments in a particular stock. Uh, over over you know uh, the course of the year there are also the short term for bio and in specific some some new data on on, uh, uh, progressive ms that you know could be very risky and in stroke for another drug so maybe the stock uh, could react in a different way than our hopes for alzheimer though you have to separate that
1: okay so i mean and more widely do you think there will be a correction coming in biotech and, and how are you positioned for that if
2: it happens so the correction in the stock market, uh, because I don't think there will be a correction in biotech separate from the whole stock market. Uh, and I, I believe you know, in on fundamental valuation. So for me, it's the interest rate that is uh, one of the most important factors, not so much geopolitical risk. Uh, usually it's the interest rate. And we are in a cycle of, of, of starting to increase interest rates. Like in the U.S., Yellen is talking now about... September or December or January. There is always some turbulence when you start to increase the interest rates. So that's, there could be some some turbulence w- when that happens, three months in advance or so. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the market has also, I think, uh, looking at the longer-term uh, uh, growth of the interest rates or increase. And and now mid-term uh, from the Feds is more like lower than 2% interest rates. So we're going to go from 0 to one8 mm. In the, it's not going to be you know extremely high interest rates anyway, so I think the setback that we might see might be short-lived anyway. But of course, there are always corrections all the time.
1: But you don't think that these kind of frothier elements of the biotech sector will see a correction, you know, which won't. If there will be a areas.
2: correction, I think the, the the stocks that will correct most are the ones that. Or in the small cap area that you just mentioned you know this mm-hmm. one the research that, 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 that doesn't have any drugs or anything while the Gilead or Biogen with a P evaluation that you know I, I mentioned for 16 years and for the sector is 20 on earnings growth and grow so for those 60. companies have very strong I mean, earnings you and, still have. and also well, something we haven't talked about is the M&A we have a lot of M&A going on. It's always an M. It's an M&A rich area. But in particular now, you can see that small caps, uh, mid caps, you know, uh, companies without uh, without drugs or drugs, you know, in the late stage or just launched, they pay you know big price for this. It's a mm-hmm. high price. I mean, so 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 it, that also supports the market because there are all of these uh, candidates, takeout candidates, that that uh, that uh, people still will think you know they will go at a higher price. So, so, so any correction for those particular stocks will be short-lived. Also, we look a lot on M and A when we invest. to so see, you know what what companies are fully own, have a wholly owned asset. You know, has a uh, will fit with another company and so on. So, those that is also a value creation um, thing that that um, that supports part of the part of it. We have just a Receptos being acquired by Celgene, um, and we had uh, we have had other stocks that have been uh, doing very well in uh, on M and A this year.
1: Okay, um, I mean, Darius, what what do you think? How risky do you think this sector is, and how much do you like it?
3: Yeah, I mean, we would tend to be concerned about valuation at premiums, and that more volatile sectors like biotech, that if there was a correction, if there is a correction in markets, that you might expect the biotech sector to underperform, maybe only for a short term, as as Carl has mentioned. And I think the other key thing that Carl's sort of brought to the discussion today is that. It's a varied and wide sector with some good cash-generative earnings companies on reasonable valuations and then sort of unheralded technologies that are in hot areas of the market that have gone very, very expensive. And I think, for me, the key thing is that on a sector like biotech more than ever, you need solid, active management where um, a manager can differentiate between those types of companies, maybe then rather just buying an ETF in the sector or something like that, where you would be exposed to all areas of the market. So, um, I, I do think biotech is, is the quality biotechs are not super expensive for the, that top line earnings growth that Carl's described.
0: Yeah, I've just uh, finally, I mean, funds in that area are concentrated in one sector. Um, what percentage of a perhaps an investor's portfolio could a, a dedicated biotech fund
3: account for? Well certainly you know we we view single sector funds as higher risk than broad market clearly and uh, more volatile sectors like biotech sort of pretty much single sector stuff like that do do carry the highest sort of risks on a fund by fund comparison. So biotech is not for every investor. I I think it's for investors who've got at least a medium to long-term outlook um, positive on the sector and if you are a medium or high risk investor you know you could allocate up to five percent we never say more than five percent for any single sector or single thematic type of view because if you have global managers or u.s managers they're going to have some exposure to biotech very likely anyway but i think five percent is is a more than generous allocation but but for investors who are able to you know ride that volatility out which which we have seen historically.
0: Okay, thanks. Some interesting insights there. This week's portfolio clinic features a couple looking to build up a pension pot to give them a set annual income in retirement over a period of three to five years. Darius, if you're trying to give your retirement pot a final boost over such a short time period, what kind of investment strategies could you adopt?
3: Yeah, I mean, historically, you might expect people coming closer to retirement to take less risk. Um, You will have built a pot of money and you wouldn't want to see it frittered away in a 2008 financial crisis where markets were down between 30 and 40 percent globally so you do need to appreciate that if you are taking a more aggressive strategy to try and give it a last last couple of years boost that actually you are taking that sort of inherent risk to the value of your pension pot um i mean frankly there's sort of taking more risk or investing more money are the only two simple um things that you can do to boost your pot. Given all the pension tax changes that are coming, you know, making um additional investments in this current tax year would, would seem a sensible starting point. And then really for from an investment strategy point of view, you know, markets generally look fairly valued globally. There's no real standout areas um, of really good value. Um, we favour Japan and Europe, um, certainly over the next 12-24 months, supported by um, better valuations than than in the States. But more importantly, they're being supported by quantitative easing, which certainly post-financial crisis has been a really strong um, driver of markets at are having QE. okay,
0: And for the strategy, you know, what sort of asset allocation could the overall portfolio have and what kind of funds could you use to put it into action?
3: Yeah, I mean, as I say, one of the key things that people historically would have done is as they approached the crystallisation effect of wanting to take that pension pot, they would generally de-risk. But given longevity, I mean, people are, you know, living to sort of 80, 85 very regularly now. So you need your pension pot to actually provide for longer. So sort of de-risking coming into sort of 60 or 65, I think probably is actually more risky um, because you need this pension pot to be able to provide an income for the longer term. Hence, you do need to keep some growth in it. So either having more growth rather than income strategies in the early years of of taking a pension pot or sort of running like a barbell type strategy where you have a portion of the pot paying an in income and a portion of the pot dedicated to growth. I like um, some of the higher income funds that you can get from the, the likes of Schroeder Income Maximizer or Fidelity Enhanced Income, where they are equity based strategies, but they actually sell away some potential growth to give you a premium income. I quite like that um, strategy for income takers. Now, clearly that portion won't grow as much as broader equities because they're giving you that premium income. Then, you know, we, we're we very negative on bonds. I'm afraid we've been early um, stroke wrong with that view. But it's been very consistent throughout the entire investment management community that that bonds. Um, so I, I don't favour bonds. Clearly, that doesn't mean you have no bonds in a portfolio, because they do act as a good diversifier. And um, they can still give you some income. Um, we like funds like Henderson Strategic Bond, which is still paying nearly 5% income. Um, 24 Asset Management Dynamic Bond is another fund, which is paying around that 5%. That also has a little bit of diversification in the fund because it actually does some asset-backed securities, which again are less correlated to the bond market and less sensitive to interest rate rises that, that, that appear to be... Um, now well forecasted for later this year, maybe early next year in the US and the UK.
0: Okay, some really useful tips there. In our money section this week, Kate has also been looking at building up sums of money over a set time period, but for a different purpose, paying school and university fees. Kate, first of all, why is it a good idea to save up for education fees in advance? Uh, Well, at a very
1: basic level, because education is very expensive if you are going private, private school fees have gone up again as of boarding school fees. um, And also university fees are increasing. Apparently the average private school fee now is over 13000 a year. Um, Average boarding school fee over 30000 And we've got tuition fees of up to 9000 So, I mean, just on a basic level, this is going to be a massive cost if you want to pay for it. um, And you need to kind of start saving early. What kind of sums do you need to
0: build up, and how much a year would you need to save?
1: Well, it's, I think we kind of broken it down into looking at this over a long um, and shorter term time horizon, because part of the issue here is that I guess you don't know necessarily how many children you'll have and what schools they might get into. Um, so obviously, the ideal is is you have a long, a long kind of time frame for this, maybe over ten years. If particularly if your child will start private school at eleven, and so then what you want to be doing is um, saving around five hundred pounds a month. And uh, Darius, we talked about this, didn't we? Yep. Um, and to build up a pot of around seventy six thousand, which could then, you know, you could then pay for that child. I mean, in an ideal world, what you'd want to do is save up um, and have a portfolio, an investment portfolio, and then the yield off that would would pay fees but you would need such a large pot wouldn't you
3: Well, you would you I mean it, it, even in today's rate getting a five percent yield from a, a any form of investment pot mm. is st- stretching it <laughs> yeah. um so yeah that sort of 500 pounds is sort of I think a minimum mm. um, and if you uh, the point about starting early is you get the benefit of compounding and that growth compounds from year to year um we quite like sort of just good old-fashioned income funds um for for this type of strategy because you've got um, the certainty of some dividend. I hope most income funds now also target dividend growth, so you're getting some, some growth in that dividend. And if you can do that for 10 years, and if we take the presumption of presuming sort of a 5 to 6% annual return after fees then sort of that £500 a month does get you to the sort of £75,000 mm-hmm. type of pot or sort of £750 a month takes you to the sort of £120,000 pot. But that clearly is per child. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think the point Kate made earlier was excellent private education is very expensive and um, clearly then the earlier you start to, to, to make some form of saving towards it and potentially university as well, uh, the better because with the university... If you start saving for a child from eighteen you know, you've got eighteen years and then you've got a really long period of time to, to, to enjoy some some some, mm. some growth and some compounding.
1: I, I guess the slight difference here with with saving for something like this, which has a very finite um, time frame, doesn't it? As in the the amount of time you'll be paying out is is set. It's not like saving for retirement in that sense where you might need the money for longer than you think. So if you do have to kind of erode the capital, um, as well as taking the income that's not the worst thing in the world, as long as you know that you have enough to cover
3: it. Well, exactly. And I think you're quite right on school fees. In an ideal world, you'd have a pot big enough that you just take the yield off of it mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, the, the, the pot would, would continue. But realistically, you're going to have to draw down. Now, you could, if you had a decent sized pot at over a 10 year period, you could convert it to a more income strategy and then just draw some capital to make up mm. the fees each year. Um, or you just keep a high growth strategy and you just cash in a certain portion of it each year to, to, to pay down those school fees.
1: But then I think that the other scenario is obviously that you've got a very short term. Yeah. yeah. Um, time frame either because you want to send the child to, to school at five yeah. Um, yeah. or, you know, it's it's kind mm. of a sudden deci- decision. And I think in that case, you don't really have enough time do you, to be in the stock market and make enormous gains I mean if you've got sort of
3: three or five years uh, I'm afraid there is no magic cure the only way to achieve either that size of pot is to make substantially more greater contributions and potentially take more risk and the the other side of taking more risk is if if you go into a period of of weak markets and we've certainly seen plenty of those in my 20 years in investments that you know you, you actually take more risk at exactly the wrong time so there's no magic wand. What what rabbit can I pull out of the hat to to meet these pots with shorter time periods? You just need to invest more. Again, you want to be balanced. Um, we quite like absolute return funds as well, where maybe you're taking you've got less market risk. There are some good funds out there, the likes of Henderson UK Absolute Return, or Swift and Williamson uh, Enterprise Fund. They're just UK funds which buy shares that they like and sell shares that they don't like but they get this netting off effect um, and they're much less correlated to equities and historically you know they've returned pretty handsome sort of six to eight percent per annum if you sort of couple that with some income funds maybe a global income fund something like Artemis Global Income Fund you know you you, you can find that you've got a sort of a a broad geographic um, exposure and and some asset class exposure as well.
1: Yeah, I think think something that quite a few people said was what you might want to do in this um, scenario is is just save as much as you possibly can to a cash ISA over five years, but also be saving into a stocks and shares, which will maybe pay out over the longer term.
3: There are different times in the cycle where cash is very attractive. At 0.5, it is not. So mm. I would rather do anything but cash. If you said to me, we've got to attack it now for a three to five years from today, if interest rates were at 5%, 5% is a very handsome compounded return with zero risk up to your sort of financial services compensation scheme limit. Um, but I, I, at this moment in time where we sit, and interest rates have yet to, to rise, I'm slightly sceptical it will happen mm. in the UK this year. So um, I think... If we were taking lower risk, something like an absolute return, some of these funds that I've mentioned have got good long term track records of delivering above five percent with lower correlation to equities. I'm not saying, you know, if equities are down twenty, they won't be down a bit, um, you know, two, three, four percent, but much less than equities. And, you know, if equities are up twenty, also they're unlikely to be up twenty. They're unlike- they're again likely to be up that sort of five to eight percent per annum, which sounds fairly healthy. Lower risk, but still with some risk type of return. So that, as I say, along with an income fund where you've at least got your dividend and some dividend growth, seems like a good starting portfolio. For, for for this type of strategy even on the shorter term
0: yeah, yeah. on the flip side um, people who are just looking to save for their kids university fees so they don't end up with big debts have potentially up to 18 years um, which gives a lot more freedom and a lot more options yeah. what sort of things can parents do to you know build up a decent pot um, for their kids going to uni
3: yeah. I mean, again, in, in this sort of instance where you've got a longer term, I would certainly give a greater allocation to f- faster growing markets. Um, that's the sort of thing where you could consider a, an allocation to uh, something like biotech, which we just previously discussed, but for my mind, much more into sort of broad Asia and emerging markets. Uh, these are fast growing countries. Um, generally, with faster growing countries and GDP support, um, you you have at least support for potential stock market growth. Um, but again, even in the last decade, we've seen sort of a fantastic rise in emerging markets. And more recently, some of them have been really poor performers. The poor performing markets clearly have been Russia and Brazil um, and China over the last three weeks. But, you know, China was up a huge amount from sort of in the previous year and, and the year before that, India. But broad Asian funds, things like First State Asia Pacific leaders, uh, Hermes, Asia X Japan, these have got good experienced managers and you know they had very very strong returns last year so the higher growth markets do again come with a bit more volatility but over that 18 year period i think we can um we we can ride out that volatility and again if you're saving into these things on a monthly basis where they are more volatile and one month the market is say one the next market it's point eight you actually get more units every time you buy when markets are down so you get that averaging of pound cost uh, pound cost averaging which which can help it and i think for 18 years again i would be very very strongly recommending that people look at at equities o- over cash particularly again with low interest rates i wouldn't say if interest rates are at five certainly have a portion in cash because mm. you've got that sort of safety um lower risk but with that longer term, I think we can do better than cash. Um, and again, historically, equities do beat cash over long terms, even when they're at more normal rates. Although I don't think anybody's expecting five percent interest rates anytime mm. soon.
1: No. <laughs> and I th- think something to note there is that with, if you've got up to eighteen years, you can use junior ISAs and bear trusts in a way that you just can't. Yeah, I mean, if you need if, the money sooner, can
3: if you... you're financially well enough off that you can afford to To make these types of savings for 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 children, for universities, or, or private fees, or or potentially even grandparents contributing, mm. which that sort of that gen- the older generation tends to have a chunk of certainly property wealth, that um, that junior ice is a great way to start. Um, that they're separate to your own sort of ISA account, so you don't have to pay any capital gains tax. There's no income tax put onto your own account. Whereas if you set up a, a, a bear trust with designation, then the tax position. Uh, still sits on your own account. Yeah, and so I think you that's do need it, to be careful to know on capital that. gains, especially over an eighteen-year time mm-hmm. period if you're making some, you know, decent contributions. But the same
1: isn't true for grandparents, is it? With a bear trust, and there's quite an important difference there, I think, between, um, I believe, if if you're opening a, a bear trust as a grandparent. Um, and more than a hundred pounds income on that investment is earned per year. You, the tax will not be put onto the grandparent, but it would be put onto the parents. So Th-
3: that that, that is correct. Um, again, but managing how these contributions are made, mm. if it's in an account, most designations are via parents, but you do see some via grandparents. And um, you know the the, the the tax benefits of the Junior ISA are quite clear. Uh, for me, the only downside of the Junior ISA is at eighteen the money is owned by the child mm, and to trust that, your child. that child <laughs> may not behave as responsibility as uh, responsibly as you might like and use the money for university. Mm. But, um, you know, I think... That, that's potentially a risk again worth taking yeah. for, the, for the sizeable tax benefits that you might accrue over an 18 mm. year period.
0: Would a sensible alternative be for the parents perhaps to use their own ISAs first of all to save for their children going to school or uni and only when they sort of max out their allowance which between them is 30k then think about the junior ISA which turns over to the child at 18?
3: A- absolutely I mean I, I'm probably taking the liberty of presuming that if you've got the sort of finances to be able to make savings for children that you probably have had already done your own ISAs first so yes make fully make use of um a, a couple's ISA allowance which is now just over 30,000 um so that that's a sensible thing to do um you you then can use junior ISAs as well which which is an obvious next stage if you have extra um money available put on a monthly basis.
0: Okay, some really useful points there. Thanks for that. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Darius McDermott, Managing Director at Chelsea Financial Services, and Carl Harold Janssen, Manager of International Biotechnology Trust. Thanks also to personal finance writer Kate Bealy. You can read more about saving for retirement and paying school fees in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening.